Webster's Dictionary defines compliance as the action or fact of complying with a wish or command. This is the Compliance Guy. The Compliance Guy. As a healthcare provider or healthcare professional, navigating the muddy waters of compliance can get tricky. And that's why we're here. Helping you mitigate risk while increasing your profitability. This is the Compliance Guy. Now, here's your host, Sean Weiss. All right. Hey, everybody. Happy Monday. We are live on another episode of the Hollywood Squares. It is the Monday Auditing, Coding, and Compliance Roundtable here on the Compliance Guy. As always, I am joined by Christine Hall, Stephanie Howard, Scott Kraft, Paul Spencer, and not last but not least, my good friend Terry Fletcher. Good morning. Good afternoon. How are all of you doing? Lovely. Good. Great. Good. 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 Well, you know, it's better Happy than to the have you back, Stephanie. We've missed you. Thank you. Yeah, things things get a little dry when you're not here, Stephanie. So, <laughs> you know. All right. So today I am in a baseball hat, and it's for good reason. One, I'm having a terrible hair day. But more importantly, this is an extremely important organization. This is the Extreme Couture GI Foundation. Um, if you get a chance, I'll I'll put it into the description. Randy Couture, um, Hall of Fame MMA fighter, good friend of mine, uh, has this incredible um, GI Foundation for veterans, their families, for Gold Star members. Um, 100% of all proceeds from everything that they do uh, goes to the Charitable Foundation. They are absolutely incredible. Um, Our men and women of uniform deserve the best care they deserve our appreciation recognition for everything that they and their families sacrifice for us so if you get an opportunity please go check out my really good friend's uh website it's extreme couture gi foundation.org uh, i'll make sure i put some links into the description from today's podcast and with that said uh again Thank you to each and every single one of you who is tuning in, logging on, and just hanging out with us around the country, around the world for just a little while while we get to explore the world of auditing, coding, and compliance. So I think we want to start, if I'm not mistaken, this morning with unlisted procedures. And so, Terry, I'm going to go ahead and let you kick this one off uh, because, you know, this was this was your topic and it's a, it's a great topic because I know. Paul and I and Stephanie and Scott and Christine, we always get emails. We always get phone calls. We get messages on LinkedIn about what do I do with an unlisted procedure? How's an insurance company going to recognize it? How are they going to reimburse it? What documentation should we have? What do we need to include on the CMS 1500 form so that they know what the actual description of the service is beyond just something that ends in a nine, nine as an unlisted service. So Terry, take it away. Okay. So first of all, um, and that's a good lead in the, the unlisted procedure codes, what it says in CPT is that this is when no other code, um, represents the procedure that you're providing. So, and it even says at the beginning, don't just approximate a code, use a code that exists. It can't just be sort of, it's like this. Well, what happens is we do get a lot of sort ofs. We do get a lot of, you know, well, it's kind of comparable to this. The problem is if you go to a provider and say, okay, how much do you want for this? They always say $5,000. And so <laughs> it's like the golden amount. And we can't do that because we know that with the fee schedule, we have to be very similar in our pricing to what it would be um, equated to, or, or maybe a lateral move, if, if you will. So the biggest thing when it comes to unlisted is first, well, there's a couple things. First of all, there was a time using unlisted code that that had to be the only code for the entire encounter where it had to be just, this was an unlisted encounter. Didn't even mean if there was something in there that you could code because they're saying, well, everything you did was part of the specific CPT. So you can't add anything else. Well, that has changed where now you can have unlisted along with 
uh, CPT codes that actually represent some of the services that were there. But here's a really good thing from the American College of Surgeons, and I really, I really like how they put this in here. So they had a, they have, for example, they said you have to have a couple of things. First of all, you might have to have a cover letter if you're going to submit something, and it might have to be by paper. Unfortunately, it can be electronic, but that makes it a little bit more difficult. Um, but it basically says you want to choose a comparison code. So, for example, you may choose a CPT code for open partial gastrectomy as your comparison code for, let's say, a partial gastrectomy laparoscopically, which is, doesn't exist. And so you have to look at something that is, corresponds to the same body or organ system, first of all. I've seen somebody try to, you know, give an unlisted knee code and try to price it the same as a brain surgery code. I'm like, what are you doing? So it has to be something um, pretty similar. Um, to what you're doing. And then two of the three factors that make an unlisted procedure uh, the same work or more or less difficult um, than the comparison code. So for example, uh, your letter could indicate that the unlisted procedure required a different operative approach um, and how much additional time. And not, again, not just for a physician that's slower than another physician, but you have to make sure that you know it, it has to be something that um, is, is, is a time concern because it, it has value. And I know we've all talked about the value of codes uh, definitely have time as part of that. Um, you need to indica indicate the difference in work between the enlisted procedure and the comparison code in percentage. So, you know, what, what is going on there? So, for example, you may estimate that the enlisted procedure required 50% more time uh, for exposure, maybe exploration, for closure, et cetera and then indicate the normal fee for the comparison code and indicate the fee for enlisted code. And we have a box 19 that you can put uh, at least up to, I think it's 15 characters now for that. But you've gotta be very mindful and have a policy on how you're gonna handle unlisted codes because it can get out of control and you, you're almost leaving it up to the billing department, the code or the biller to say, well, let's try this. And there's you don't wanna do that. So Christine, I'm gonna throw it to you because I know you have a little bit more statistical on this. Well, I'm going to channel my my inner Frank Cohen here and, and throw some statistics out there, right? <laughs> so one of the things they said in CPT this year, well, they gave a great example of a stab phlebectomy. And we have a code out there for um, 20 to or 10 to 20 stabs. That's that's when when they need to you know bleed somebody. We still bleed people, ironically enough. Uh, <laughs> And when it's between 10 and 20 stabs, it reimburses almost $450. So the example they gave was there was less than 10 stabs. So you could take that $450 and divide it between you know, 10 to 20 stabs and take that number and apply it to, and really be able to show a payer what that value would be apples to apples. The, the stab phlebectomy code that exists has an RVU of this. It has a value of this. It's for this type of procedure and to show them that difference there. And that's really going to help us to get those types of codes moved into a category one code or a category three code at least, right? So that we can start getting some reimbursement for those. But like they were saying in CPT and like Terry was saying, you can't just take something that is almost kind of like it and and put a modifier 52 on it or something because it's it's not the same modifier 52 is this is a reduced procedure so it's not really the same we intended to do something completely different so um I want that was the example on, i wanted to share something too i noticed that a lot of people will use unlisted thinking that that's the way to payment when it actually exists in category three and right. I'm just like, what are you doing? No, no, no. Remember, if a code exists, that's what you have to use. And there's a reason for category three codes there. So it's and there. that's what they were saying in CPT yeah. this year, Terry. They put a whole bunch of instructions in the beginning of the instruction manual trying to remind coders that those unlisted are out there and they are different than category one and category threes. Category three exists because we're trying to move those into category one. So if you don't use them, then there's a sunset date. They're going to go right off into the sunset. And so, you know, and not be there. So you want to make sure that you are utilizing them and then make, make individual, you know, um, contracts with payers. I've done that so many times with some vascular procedures where we can say, well, we have a category three and there's not a pricing for it on your fee schedule. So can we negotiate based on our volume? And, you know, payers are like, okay, let's look at your volume. Let's see what's going on. But to say, well, I don't want to use category three, the T codes, 
I just want to use it unlisted just so I can get paid. That that's going down a path that that's not appropriate based on CPT rules. And Terry, you know, for those out there that say, well, we don't get paid for that, you can always negotiate a single case agreement prior to the procedure, giving all the information, giving the description, giving the cost of it to the payers to get approval for that unlisted code and for the amount that you're looking for. Correct. We've done that quite a few times. I think a lot of this depends on conversations as well with the surgeons because I get questions quite a bit and I actually, I was covering for NamUs, we do ask the auditor and we kind of rotate and take turns. And I had a question come through and basically the person was asking if something could be billed a certain way to essentially unbundle. So we have to remember that unlisted codes aren't there just because there is a bundling between what exists or in the situation that I was looking at last week, the primary procedure included the repair of the area that the surgeon wanted billed out as unlisted. So we have to be really careful. This isn't the out to just, you know, get more money for what's being done, the increased work. I know, Paul, um, I've, hear, I've heard you speak many times about Modifier 22 and everything that goes into that, which has its own headaches. But uh, unlisted is not the way to seek the extra reimbursement for work that the surgeons don't feel they're getting paid for. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, Paul, you know, let, let's let's talk just briefly about, you know, why modifier 22 is such a critical modifier and what you have seen through the audits that have been performed where it's it's not been utilized appropriately or where the documentation fell short and what should have been as a best practice documentation contained in the notes to be able to support the higher remuneration that the practice is seeking for that service. Yeah, thank you. So uh, there are three things that you need in order to support modifier 22. And in about 95% of the cases, I see that one or more of these is missing. First, you need to indicate the unexpected uh, eventuality that came into being when you open that patient up. Uh, the, the most common example that I can use is somebody goes in for laparoscopic gallbladder removal. And based on their body habitus, they have uh, just enormous adhesions uh, to the uh, abdominal wall that require a lot of time in order to go through. Uh, you know, And uh, so uh, you use the example of what you found when once you uh, begin that surgical procedure, uh, what actions you took in order to address that unexpected finding during the surgical uh, session. And then this is the biggest one, and you have to listen to this language carefully. It's the total number of minutes above and beyond what you would normally see for that uh, particular surgical procedure. So it's not just saying, oh, I spent 90 minutes. That's not going to mean anything because it, it, we've talked a lot about the uh, physician time file on the Medicare physician fee schedule. And there are very definitive time values to every portion of that procedure, including intraoperative service time. So what you're doing when you report the time above and beyond what you normally see for that procedure, you're reporting time above and beyond intra-service time because it wouldn't be pre, it wouldn't be post. It's while you are operating on the patient. If you have all three of those documentary steps, you know, what you found, the steps you took to correct it, the time above and beyond what it normally takes, then you can be reimbursed for the modifier 22. Again, we need an, a whole other episode as to how to determine whether that reimbursement is correct. Uh, I've got a calculation. If you want to ask, uh, just drop me an email. Uh, but uh, it becomes quite involved because you're really talking about the work RVUs more than anything else. Yeah, that's a great point. So, you know, you're, so Paul, I asked you to lead with that from a let's be proactive standpoint as providers. Let's understand what the guidelines are. Let's understand that this has nothing to do with the pre or post service time. It's all tied directly to the intraoperative service, but it's above and beyond what you normally do. So you've got to be very yeah. explicit yeah. with and, time. 
Yeah, and I'd like to add that uh, understanding that the physician time file, as it appears on the Medicare physician fee schedule, this is the Harvard Ruck time study. It's a five-year rolling. When they show a median time, some physicians are faster, some physicians are slower. Yep. That is the median time. This is why you report the extra time it took you That's to right. perform that service. That's right. Paul, so, Paul Terry, I wanted to come to you. Yeah, Paul also made a comment that is really important if you ever have to appeal a 22 modifier. And I'm glad you said it, Paul, because I think this is one thing that's missed in, in some of those where it says increased procedural service. One of the things that Paul said, and this is so important in your documentation, is an unanticipated problem. So you didn't know going in that this was going to be uh, you know, an increased procedural service. You thought it was going to be close to routine. Maybe there was going to be some issues and all of a sudden you open up and go, oh my goodness. Right. So now there's a problem. And when I've had that language within that report makes all the difference to try to get that extra reimbursement because let's face it, there's a scheduling issue here. The doctor scheduled the procedure for 90 minutes and all of a sudden they're like, uh, cancel my office. I'm going to be here a while. And so now you get paid for for that extra time, that extra effort, all of that. So it, it does definitely um, represent what you actually did. And just make sure the documentation can with, withhold that or withstand that if you have, have to appeal it. Yeah. And, and I wanted, and, and, and I brought that up and Paul, I'll come right back to you. You know, the reason why I, I, I brought that up and why I was coming over to you, Terry, is, you know, you do uh, obviously more than any of us on here, you do audits for the payers. And, I, you know, I always want people to understand Listen, it's one thing for us as subject matter experts in the area of auditing, coding, documentation to give our guidance based on authoritative information, published guidance. And sometimes we have to, because the guidelines are ambiguous, we have to give our expert opinion on things. But I want, I want people to hear from your perspective as an auditor for payers. You know, what are what are the payers thoughts you know so, what is their perspective on a modifier like the 22 they hate it they i know they talk do. about anything else no, <laughs> just they don't like it that's the end of that um well i mean let's put it in perspective payers are trying to save money they love their billion dollar profits and hopefully the payers that i audit for don't go hey terry that's you're not supposed to say that it's on everywhere everyone knows what your profits are it's it's public okay so it's not me just saying it but in saying that, they also still have to fulfill policy provisions, and there's not usually a policy on the 22 modifier. And so you're you're basically kind of going in blind, hoping that you're going to get reimbursement. And so again, what what is being looked at from a payer perspective? Because I have audited um, for one a couple of smaller payers in the blues on that side uh, for 22 modifiers, and it's interesting what they look for. They look for language, and Paul hit it on the head to look for you know time for that particular situation, not just a, a slower physician. They look for anticipate unanticipated problem that you found within there. We're looking at 22. Um, when we talked about unlisted, they're making sure that it was a separate procedure, not an extension of a procedure. Um, not something that, you know, you're in there anyway or incidental, let's say. So Paul mentioned something about um, adhesions. And it one thing that's important in that sense, and I and actually a couple of payers have said this, and actually one has a policy on it. If you have, to, if you can't get to the major procedure without first going through the forest, then you probably have an argument that I can't even get to the to the appendix, or I can't get to the gallbladder until I cut through. You know what's going on here with the machete. But if, of course, that's probably bad. But if it's incidental, meaning that you got the gallbladder done, and oh hey, on my way out, incidentally, I think I'll get some rid of some of these adhesions and clean it up. That's not something you can bill for. So know the difference. And the only way that the payer knows the difference is that you're documenting it and document it to, so they can understand it. Um, you know, physician speak sometimes is really tough because you're reading it and it just looks like the whole procedure was, a, you know, your complex procedure. You have to reflect why this particular part of it was above and beyond, mm -hmm. as, as Paul said, as Christine said, above and beyond uh, that requires additional reimbursement. Okay. Paul, yeah. I want to go ahead. Scott, one second. Paul, did you want to finish your, your thought before I go to Scott? Uh, actually, I think we just covered my All right, good. thoughts. So, so Scott, let's go. 
Let's go they, to you. Sorry for yeah, the, off. the one thing I was going to add, um, you know, one of the top questions I get asked by physicians as part of education sessions around documentation is, can I make this into a macro statement? Can I just get a statement oh, that I can just point. put into the note? And I think for a lot of us who have read surgical notes in the past, you know, the physicians doing the same surgery regularly, the notes don't necessarily change a lot. I mean, sometimes the tell is it's we talked about the Hollywood squares at the beginning. I'll bring up the match game. Sometimes somebody forgets to fill in a blank, right? And it's like, you know, I started by cutting into the blank, right? And like, I hear that match game music in the background that those of us of a certain age will play. Modifier 22 is not a good macro statement usage because we're talking about things that should not be part of your common practice, things that should be rare. And so I don't think it's it's favorable to have a macro statement for modifier 22 that just says, you know, I spent an extra amount of time because of some reason, right? And, and I think one of the points that, that we've tried to make about modifier 22 is it's designed to be the exception to the norm. So if it's becoming the norm, then it's probably not ideally a modifier 22 case because you know it's going to happen. Excellent. So keeping with the modifier theme, I think we, as much as I despise having this conversation, I think we need to. Um, let's chat about the modifier 59 and let's talk about these X modifiers. So Stephanie, I'm going to come to you first and then I want to go to Christine. Um, let's, let's talk about first and foremost, what is the modifier 59 and what is its proper usage? So to put it simply and to start us out here, um, we really need some kind of NCCI edit checker, right? We've got to be able to identify where bundling edits exist and then from there look to see where we apply 59. So the, the basic main purpose of this is that it's a distinct procedural service and we're looking at adding it in because there are bundling edits that exist between different procedures and we are showing that they were done separate. Um, there can be different reasons behind that, right? When we look, and I know we're gonna dissect this in the group here, but when we look at the breakout with the X modifiers, sometimes it's a different organ, a different structure. Um, sometimes it is the different indications for procedures, depending on the type of surgeries and things like that. So one of the main issues that I find with my own auditing um, not necessarily denial work, but with, on the auditing side, one of the main issues I see when we look at just 59 is when it's being applied all over the place. And I was also just asked last week about this as well, pretty much, you know, what is the harm in adding extra 59 modifiers? And, you know, it's one of those things where we only want to do what is expected, what is based on the guidelines. And we don't just add it everywhere because there's multiple things happening and we hope that they don't bundle in the claim system. Go ahead, Christine. So let's let's talk about the X modifiers, Christine, because, you know, those were CMS's response to what they consider to be an epidemic with the utilization of the modifier 59. So let's let's talk about the, the X modifiers and let's kind of clarify these for our folks. And then um, Scott, Paul, um, Terry will kind of go around the horn. Well, I the way that I understand it is modifier 59 has so many ifs. So if this, if this, if this, and if this, then, right? So it is, I can see how maybe someone who is new to coding or that is um, being told what to do from their providers, that happens all the time, how modifier 59 could be easily overutilized just from the lack of knowledge. So the X modifiers break that down. They break down the, the separate site, the separate structure, the separate practitioner, um, unusual uh, non-overlapping service. So they just give us a little more definition it, to expand upon that modifier 59, because again, it, it, it's if this, if this, if this, and if this, or if this, uh, not very clear um, what that if looks like. Also, when we think about using NCCI, you know, it tells us that, yeah, th we might be able to use a modifier with these two particular conditions, but how do we explain what is actually happening? Is there a little bit of overlap? Is there absolutely no overlap? Is there, is it, is it totally different um, providers that are doing this? 
that's where those X modifiers really come in is to clarify those details. Terry? Yeah, one of the things I, I use X modifiers a lot and also I, I educate on this quite a bit because they're misunderstood. I call them the stepchildren of the of the 59 modifier. And the reason for that, for example, there's XP, separate provider, XS, separate site service system, organ system, et cetera, XE, separate encounter, and XU, non-overlapping service. So breaking it down. Oh, before I say that, you use this instead of the 59. I was doing a consult for a practice and they said, you know what, those don't work. And I'm like, okay, well, let me look at your claim forms. Two minutes in, I said, we well, can't fill them with a 59. They had 59 XU or 59 XP. They said, why not? I said, well, here's the guidance. It says, instead of <laughs> the 59, use this only. And they're like, oh, do we have an FU modifier? We didn't, we didn't read that far. So that was kind of funny to me. We do in, in Philadelphia. A, in a non, yeah, in a non-funny <laughs> sense. I know I'm trying not to laugh, but it was kind of amusing. Two minutes into Sorry. it, I know what the problem is. But just break it down. For example, let's say you're in gastro, one of my specialties, and you did a colonoscopy on a patient and they had a, and then they left the endoscopy lab and they had a, a spontaneous bleed and there had to be a control of bleeding procedure gone back in endoscopically. Well, if it's the same provider that went back in, let's say two hours later, went back to the suite, you want to get paid 100% for going back. But if it's the same date and you put a 59 on it, they're going to think it's the same encounter. So you would use XE for separate encounter for that physician. But let's say that patient's physician went home and now there's another doctor on call. And two hours later, a separate provider from the same group practice had to go back in and stop the bleed. Then that would be XP. So these are specific X modifiers, again, under the 59 modifier uh, general um, modifier to be able to um, explain a little bit better, a little bit more detail of what's happening with that patient. And the biggest thing is that just like I think Pam said, and, and a lot of the people that are listening in today, you can't just put a 59 or any X modifier on something and assume that that's going to not only pay you, but that it should be on everything. You know, the XU, for example, I had to figure out when that would actually apply. And in talking to CMS, they gave us a couple of options. And I said, well, that doesn't make sense because those codes don't have an edit. So why am I putting an XU modifier on a liver biopsy when I'm doing, you know, a heart procedure? And they said, well, that's Oh, I go, yeah, there's no edit. You can do those separately. And they went, oh, okay. Well, how about, and I said, okay, well, again, there's no edit. And then we talked about different procedures, let's say the lower extremity. And I said, how about this? If you're in a different territory in the lower extremity and I'm doing a stent here and I'm doing angioplasty down here, how about that? No, it's the same leg. I'm like, oh, geez, you guys aren't helping me here. So even CMS couldn't answer the question. Um, and then we found out with the heart cath and let's say an intervention on the same date, because there is an edit there, but as long as one is diagnostic and not basically setting up that intervention, I said, can I put it on the heart cath? And several payers said, yeah, that's perfect. We'll put that in our guidance. I'm like, oh, geez, well, happy to help you. So there's, there's some things there that sometimes it's trial or an error, but you have to be careful because it, it could mean that they're, even though they may not be related or whatever, you could have a hard time with that. And I see that Pam had XU in there as an, uh, an injection on the same date as a large joint injection that are unrelated. That could be possibility of one. It also depends on the payer because remember the X modifier is specific to Medicare, but I do see it in the CPT book and some payers, actually a lot of payers do recognize them. You just have to figure out which payer that is. All right. So Oh, there's some I examples think, of the XU, Terry, yeah, in the right. um, CMS MLN guideline for 59 and the Xs. And, but again, it reads like mud. So I like the way that you describe that and the way that Pam is also interjecting there a lot better than what I'm seeing. And we didn't get a lot of guidance on this. They sent out an alert and then it took them years to say, oh, here's another one. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So I think that's enough talk about modders, modifiers, modders martyrs. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we're all martyrs. Uh, that's enough talk about modifiers for now. Um, let's jump into another code that has seemingly created a lot of aggravation. Um, I want to talk about the G2211 for just a minute. Um, we did an episode on that, um, a, a, a couple few weeks back. Um, 
and we got a lot of really good response to it. So, um, Scott, let's talk about what is the G2211, and then let's go around the horn and let's kind of quickly break that down for our viewers and our listeners again to make sure that everybody is on the right page with how to use this HickPix Level 2 um, uh, code. So in summary, the G2211 is an add-on code uh, for E&M services when the provider has, um, I'm going to botch this word, a longitudinal uh, relationship with the patient and is you know regularly involved in the patient's care. Um, I have had more than one person ask me, uh, in some cases tell me, that the plan is to auto-apply this to all of the primary care services um, for different reasons based on research that's being done by the providers, including in one case, Googling the definition uh, of longitudinal. So I think, you know, we, I don't wanna rehash everything about it. I know the intent of this code, at least as I've understood it, uh, is to pay a modest amount of additional reimbursement uh, for providers who are managing over the long term uh, patient relationships that pr predominantly may be focused on chronic conditions, but may also include uh, the management of acute conditions either across a longer episode or, you know, in the setting uh, of chronic conditions. And, you know, I think I've not heard anything about groups planning to use this code that has given me any um, comfort, I guess I'll say. Um, but I think it is important that you start to establish what the boundaries are. You probably should have done this already. The boundaries and definitions uh, for the internal use of this code, you know, particularly if you have patients, uh, just to run through some examples, uh, who go in once a year, uh, maybe because they have uh, seasonal allergies or, or, you know, some sort of acute problem that don't really require any chronic or ongoing management. You may not see them for a year if they don't get sick other than, you know, maybe a physical. Uh, think about when it would be appropriate to use this code. And, you know, I mean, as, as I recommend about most things, are on the side of caution and define scenarios where patients are being seen on a regular basis. Um, and that regular basis may not on every visit be today we're managing the diabetes, today we're managing, you know, the asthma. But I think providers should be, and they probably should be doing this anyway when appropriate, documenting the impact of chronic diseases on these acute management visits. Like the best way to demonstrate to me a longitudinal relationship is not to Google longitudinal and say, that sounds like what I do. It's over the course of your documentation, establishing the fact that you are engaged in the ongoing management of this patient, that you are incorporating their various conditions uh, into your treatment plans, even as um, the patient may have an acute problem. And I don't think, you know, I don't think the examples that we've gotten have always been great either in terms of how they introduce the, the possibility of a patient having an acute condition such as sinusitis and saying that's indicative of the possibility of using like G2211. I, I, to me, this still continues to be somewhat muddy. And, you know, I think before you go too over the top with your usage of it, just remember when it shows up on the work plan in two years, it's going to be a, a, a Medicare auditor's paradise. Like somebody's some some Medicare auditor is going to have a boat that's called the G2211 from all the money that they brought back from auditing the overuse of this service. Well, for somebody who is just going to give a quick <laughs> overview, man, you, Sorry, really, yeah. re you really threaded the needle on that one, man. Well <laughs> done. I'm going to volunteer to audit this code because this has been a <laughs> headache of mine. I'm going to be like, you yeah. know what? Sign me up. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, here's the interesting thing. Um, there's been a couple of other videos that have come out from people um talking about the g2211 and there's been some unfortunate misguidance lack of clear guidance or just plain wrong information folks um christine hall was kind enough to provide me with the most recent release 
from January 18 of 2024 with the proper application for the add-on evaluation and management uh, code G2211. I've posted that into the comments for you. Um, please take the time to review it because at the end of the day, if you get audited or investigated and you say, well, I got my information from so-and-so, so-and-so is not the authoritative source. We are not the authoritative source because we don't write the guidelines. We are the subject matter experts that get the opportunity to glean the information that is provided, try to make heads or tails out of it, try to remove the ambiguity and the gray areas for you to the best of our ability without creating potential risk. So remember at the end of the day, it is up to you and your providers to review this content and to make certain that you understand its proper application. All right. I want to move. Can I make one comment? Before yeah, of course, Terry. So one of the things I was in a call, uh, listening to one of the uh, stakeholder calls with uh, Novitas and First First Coast. I was I shared this with Christine because we were both like, "You've got to be kidding me!" And so this was last week, and the person on the call that was presenting this G two two one one, they were saying, "Well, because the question came up is, um, can all providers use it? So NPPs and physicians." And I've been instructing my clients that for right now, let's just have physicians until it's in writing that it can, it can be all providers. And then I saw something recent, I think it was actually that, that new release that, that you posted that said anyone who has ENM services in their licensure can report it. But then I started looking at the longitudinal definition. Yeah, Scott, I did Google it. And just really saying, okay, what are they looking for here? And then looked at the definition within the final rule. And it really talked about that trust and that relationship between the physician and the patient. And so to me, if you start passing off this code to mid-level providers who we love, we need them. And so this is not to discount what you do either, but it, you, you don't have the same relationship as, as the physician and the patient does. At least I wouldn't think so. And so if it, to me, that's a problem for us. And especially because it says serious, complex, and now it actually added the word chronic condition. So to allow your um, mid-levels to use it, it's going to be a judgment call. And I'm not saying you couldn't, but I'm saying that you, you may be under scrutiny as, as Scott said, you know, when this comes on the OIG work plan, they'll be like, really? So your, your nurse practitioner, your PA is actually following the patient for all, and it says all, all of all. the healthcare needs for this serious complex physician. I thought the provider was doing that, the physician was doing that. And then the other thing about the automatic, oh my gosh, the automatic adding. Um, and Pam asked this question. Uh, yes, I also did this on my CodeCast podcast. I, I kind of did a, a thing on this. But one of the things that I noticed is that Noridian um, hasn't downloaded it yet. So you're, you're getting some denials from Noridian in some of the areas because they haven't added it to their um, payment fee schedule yet. But also, um, I had a couple clients saying whenever they're billing it or sending it off with a level two, it's automatically denied. No, There's nothing in guidance that says that, but think about that. A service that is straightforward, minimal, and you're adding on a complex, serious add-on to it. I don't know. Something in my head kind of went off, going, "Huh, that makes sense that that could be denied." So we're gonna have we're gonna have a lot of things happen with this code. And again, like Sean said, we can only dissect it, let you know what we're reading, what we're finding out, and give you our our best practices on on how to utilize it. Well, and, th and that's the part that I struggle with. Um, you know, I was trying to think about. Uh, so Christine had shared, and and Sean had posted the latest guidance on it with respect to example one, the sinusitis example, which let me just tell you, I'm not a fan of. Um, and I think a way that I would, the way that I was thinking about it, right, is I get my oil changed at what we'll describe as a major oil change retailer with locations throughout the United States. Um, and I go at a certain frequency. And is it because I have a longitudinal relationship with them based on trust? Or is it because I don't feel like getting oil all over my hands and I just, it's much easier to just go there and deal with it. And I know it's like a need of something that I have. And so when I, I see the sinusitis example, you know, if I look, I'm fortunate, knock on wood, that I'm in fairly good health. If I go to my doctor for sinusitis, is it because I have a longitudinal, longstanding trust relationship or I just need something so I can sleep? And I think we're putting these conversations on the table. And that's one of the reasons why I think an example like that is not particularly helpful because a lot of times these visits, I have a primary care doctor. I think a lot of younger people might just go to urgent care for these things. 
the fact that I have a primary care doctor who I will allow that I trust in case he's listening, um, I don't go very often, right? And when I go, it's usually like I need something to deal with this. And if he puts me in front of the nurse practitioner one day, that's fine too, right? Like I just need what I need. And so it's very discomforting because the code is described a certain way where you tend to think about we're building up a relationship around the management of ongoing things. And example one is like, well, I haven't been here in two years, but I have sinus issue today. <laughs> Give me a medication. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, but like that's just, I think that's difficult for me. I mean, too. So, I like Robin's thing on Crohn's and half. Yeah. I agree. That's appropriate. <clears throat> it is. It is appropriate. And that's why I put it up there. So, um, Christine, I'm going to give you the last word on the G2211. And then, Stephanie, I'm going to come to you with our next topic. A couple of things I want to caution. One, um, the, these guidances, as they get published, I would download them. And, and usually you'll never hear me say that. Usually you'll hear me say, just get the link. But because I have a feeling, if, if again, if I look inside my, my crystal ball here, if I have a feeling that, that we're going to see a lot more coming about this, and it's good to have documents dated um, as to when that guidance came out. The second thing I'm going to caution you is think about those Medicare uh, Advantage plans that may or may not cover this. And when they have assigned patients in an HMO product to a provider, they don't have a choice not to have a longitudinal relationship. There's no out of network coverage without seeing that primary care provider. So um, does it become a bit redundant? Is it gonna put a drain on that part of that, that system and how that works? I don't know, but these are great questions. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, I just like hearing everybody pronounce the word longitudinal. All right, let's go to Stephanie Howard and let's, let's take thought. on. Sorry. Like, like the, the most use of the word longitudinal, it doesn't involve like like ships sailing the seas. <laughs> or geography. Long, longitudinal. Longitudinal. That's a J sound. <laughs> As he phonetically pronounces it. All right. Let's let's move on before we digress any further. Stephanie, let's go ahead and talk about the pelvic code. Because there's been some questions that have arisen about this. I think we need to give some clarification. And I know, Paul, you kind of took this on uh, previously. So let's put this between Stephanie and Paul to get us out of the gate. And then let's um, get um, Terry, Christine, and Scott, uh, your thoughts on this. And I think this will be our last topic of the day. All right. So the code we're going to talk about is 99459, which is the add-on code for a pelvic exam. And if you go in and look at your coding software, your coding books, whatever it may be, what you're going to find is you're able to add this on to your new and established patient codes and then also your preventative codes. So I think that is important to understand because at first when I heard that that was coming, I thought, okay, maybe that is that situation where patients come back for, you know, a repeat pap or different things that end up happening that typically we don't have a separate CPT code. But this is both going to be for our problem visits and our preventative visits. And some of what the back and forth is here is the thought process behind what is the work involved for this particular code. So I'm going to give my spin on it and then Paul, I'll turn it to you and see if you think differently. <laughs> so when we think about the use of 99459 and the pelvic examination, this is really, from my perspective, intended to be something where it's the staff time of coming in and being a chaperone that's documented in the record. Um, Paul, I see you shaking, so we'll see what you think here. But when we think about the work, to me, it's not just a staff member going in, taking the speculum out, the, you know, the different things that they're going to be using to gather the sample. It's them actually coming in, spending their time as that's being done. Um, from a documentation standpoint with that, obviously we would need to see that in there. But in my experience, a lot of times now in the OB practices, they are 
really calling out when someone else is in the room. It's not just stating the providers there. They're identifying when the other staff is there, when pelvic exams have to be done um, for chaperone purposes or if the patients, you know, deny that and all of that. So um, go ahead, Paul. What What's your stand on this? Okay, so part of it is chaperones. So uh, I go to the AMA CPT symposium every year, just so you don't have to. And uh, I still have the uh, slides for that presentation. And the reason why this was added is uh, really goes to the preventive codes. They added it because preventive codes are gender, gender neutral. They don't really talk about who is getting a preventive medicine service. They do as far as age, but not gender. Uh, so they introduced 99459 to talk about pelvic examinations. And the way the AMA worded it was, code 99459 has been created to account for extra resources in pelvic examinations, which are required for preventive medicine or E&M services for individuals needing pelvic exams. And the most important part of it is this code covers practice expense only. So when you pull this service up, uh, again, the physician time file, the physician time is zero, you know, uh, on the uh, physician time, uh, you know, spreadsheet for 2024. It says zero across the board. There's no, it's not, you know, so there's, there's no uh, work expense to 99459. It is strictly practice expense for uh the the extra resources that you expend for uh for a pelvic exam for a person coming in to uh have a preventive medicine visit or another E&M service so paul based on what you heard at the symposium did they give any insight as to whether or not there's additional documentation required or to just the fact that the pelvic is occurring? Basically that the pelvic is occurring, you know? So, I mean, uh, so, uh, you know, I, I know that there is some confusion about the final rule saying it takes four minutes of time, but again, if it's falling only to practice expense, practice expense isn't time-based. Practice expense is resource-based. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I pull up the physician time file. I've got zeros on that line all the way across the board. It doesn't add any uh, any time at all. It really just is the practice expense of bringing in a a chaperone or additional uh, you know uh, resources that you know, it doesn't it doesn't define resources. But I think we can. Uh, stretch out what those resources would be for a female patient requiring a pelvic examination. All right, Terry, any any thoughts on this? Because I I know you you know yeah. you kind of raised some thoughts and concerns about this code as well. So well, you know, let's let's put it all out there. There's a trusted uh, consultant out there just saying that you don't have to put a, that in your documentation that you used an extra staff member. And I'm going to disagree with that position without telling you who that was. Not that I discount what this person says, but the fact that the code says the additional um, in the final rule, the staffing time, and, and we have to know PE and, and RVU time is different. Um, but the thing is, is that when they said when they talk about this and the expense, and it basically said the code is valued with four minutes of staff time and a supply kit of 20 bucks. That was from the AMA RVS update, the RUC committee. Um, what they're saying, but Paul's right. It's not on the, the spreadsheet at all as far as that. So there's a little bit of conflict there as far as the practice expense versus RVU expense. One doesn't exist without the other. Um, and so what, what my issue is here is that I'm going to, I'm going to think, I, I think I'm going to see it basically for just setting up the room. And so isn't the, isn't there a, an assumption that when a patient's coming in for their, they're scheduled for their path and pelvic, that that's what they're coming in for under the preventative service. So I'm not understanding why that shouldn't be as part of the documentation. And, you know, Sean and I, you and I've talked about this quite a bit is that best practices just to be above scrutiny, 
put it in the put it in the note saying that you had to have a you know somebody in there. Think if you're a male OBGYN or a male you know gynecologist or even a, a primary care doctor who uh, does the the well woman checks and the pelvic exam and you don't and you have somebody come in you know, then I think that it would be warranted. But if you're a female physician and you don't need that person in there, does that mean that there isn't staff time? So I think there's still a slight gray area for me on what should be documented, what shouldn't be. And to me, if you need to have a staff in there, I would document it just, just for best practices. It would be appropriate. So let me, let me, you, you brought up something that made me think about um, a, a scenario that I ran into a couple of years back. You know, there's always the question of whether or not during a female examination, if it's being performed by a female provider, whether or not they should have subsequent staff in there with them. Um, my answer to that is absolutely there should be. Um, I have been brought into cases where um, it was a quitam or it was a healthcare fraud case, but then all of a sudden out of nowhere, an allegation of sexual misconduct or um a a belief that a person's personal you know a person was violated um always always irrespective of whether it's a male examining a male um a female examining a female or vice versa in those situations um there needs to be somebody else present in that room to be able to confirm and or refute any allegations of um, misappropriate or, or bad behavior. So, um, yeah, I mean, a hundred percent, you know, I agree with Suzanne right here, you know, protection for any gender position. Um, you know, it's unfortunate that we have to practice defensive medicine but that's the society that we live in. That's the society we've lived in for quite a while. And to be candid, you know, unfortunately, there have been some bad providers out there who have taken advantage of unsuspecting patients. So, you know, but, in, but getting away from that, we're yeah. trying to say, should it be documented to be able to support getting the extra money? That that was the big thing. Well, yeah, me. I mean, obviously, the documentation is key, right? In anything that we do, documentation is key to being able to support the additional remunerations that practices are seeking. You know, it, it just, you know, it, Paul and I actually, uh, we got an email late last night from one of our clients who we're representing in an audit appeal uh, with uh, Clarence, if I'm not mistaken. And the provider completely forgot about the fact that they were actually documenting these additional uh 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 trend you know these additional episodes that were taking place uh outside of the regular progress notes and you know these just strengthen it so i, I am a proponent of documenting as much as you can possibly document all right christine i think you had um a, a comment that you wanted to make and then we'll kind of Roll around the group and let's let's wrap up this uh, Monday auditing, coding, and compliance roundtable. I just wanted to remind everybody that you know when new codes come out, we usually don't have a lot of guidance. And but until we get further guidance, let's roll with what we've got. The final rule says they you know anticipate that this is for at least four minutes of chaperoning the the speculum that is used. Let's document that. Let's support what we can support. Let's not speculate what we think they mean until we get that additional information, especially because there's payment involved here. And the final rule doesn't say male or female provider. It simply says to have that person in the room there with them. And, and it's been my experience that there's always someone there to assist with handing you know, material or for uh, processing that specimen as it's collected. And so that's what this cost really is to cover. So why not document that this, this has happened? We had that chaperone, we used the following equipment, what happens? Just speak what you did, speak what the circumstances. And, and I think we'll be okay until we get further guidance. Great point. Stephanie Howard, last thoughts. Okay. I'm just going to reiterate what Christine said earlier about 
downloading versions of information we have right now. That is something you may need later on in your defense. One thing beyond that too, write down a policy for your organization. Don't just discuss it, but have it in writing so everybody's doing the same thing so that you can show in you know a thought out researched way that that is your take on it based on the information that you download at that time and what your understanding was and keep that on hand just in case. Excellent. Scott Kraft. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll sort of echo what everybody else said here. I, I wouldn't, one thing I would say is, particularly as it relates to new codes, is I wouldn't interpret no guidance from a specific payer as I can do less than this other set of written guidance, right? And so, you know, I think one of the things that, that there's always a political aspect to how services get paid. And so one of the things I was looking up while we were speaking is like ACOG does not make any reference to like a human being. And like in ACOG's world, wouldn't it be great if it was just the extra supplies and you didn't need a human being? And CMS may say in the final rule, well, guess what? For us, like we want to know that there's a chaperone. So if I were an individual practitioner, unless I could point to a policy from the payer that tells me I don't need a person, I wouldn't be in a hurry to start tacking this onto services where I did not have a person. Um, now, look, if we come back in two months and Blue Cross Blue Shield or some payer says, hey, guess what? You know, We'll pay for this strictly based on the supplies and you don't need a person or you, you know, you just need to document that you examine like certain parts mm -hmm. of, of what we think of as like a, say a Medicare pelvic exam, like a GO 101, that would be one thing. But if we don't have that, then I would look at what's written by CMS and say, well, at the very least, I've got this as a written standard that I can hold on to while we sort all this out. Excellent. Paul Spencer. Well, while I've uh, been sitting here, I've already had people reach out to me on LinkedIn uh, about uh, 22 modifier calculations. So uh, continue to reach out uh, to me on LinkedIn about 22 modifier calculations. I'll be happy to help you. It is complicated. And understand that there is no rule that says Medicare or commercial insurances will ever justify the extra amount that's paid to you in any way, shape, or form. As a matter of fact, I brought it up to a CMS interrogator on a webinar once, and you can just imagine how that went. Uh, so I can get you close. I will I can never get you exact, but I'll be happy to share the information with you. Excellent. All right. Last but not least, my good friend, Terry Fletcher. So one of the questions I got on this code was, well, the GO 101 says cervical or vaginal cancer screening, pelvic and clinical breast examination, usually done during a preventive. So Terry, now can I get also the 99459 and the GO 101? My first response was no, <laughs> that would be one in the same. And then I went and looked at the edits. There's no edits. So I'm just like, you know what? I think it's, I think it's duplication, but that's me. Yeah. But again, pelvic exam versus pelvic screening, is that different? So there might be an edit coming up. Yeah. <clears throat> Remember, the payers are behind. They're just behind right now. And so I would venture careful. to guess, Terry, that if people start billing those in conjunction with they're each other at some up. point, it's going to flag and they're yeah. going to get clawbacks. But to your point, monitor the CCI and let's see what happens in an upcoming version, whether or not they make them, you know, exclusive to each other. Right. It's, it's like the prolonged service codes, you know, Medicare didn't change their time, but they changed the time in CPT and Medicare for ENM. So yeah. that doesn't even make sense. So some things don't make sense, but best practices, common sense, you, you need to some kind of default to that. The Absolutely. next question, the next question is going to be, can, can you bill, can you build the 99459 and the G0101 and put modifier 52 on one of them? I know, I know. Right. Scott, let's, you know, it's time for you to go. It's, it's, I'm sorry. Let, let's, uh, say, let's, let's save that for another week. Yeah. All right. That's going to wrap up this week's um, auditing, coding, and compliance roundtable here on the Compliance Guy. As always, I want to thank Christine, Stephanie, Scott, Paul, and Terry for taking time out of their very busy schedules to um, help educate all of us that are trying as hard as we can to do the right thing each and every single day and sometimes falling a little short. Terry and I are going to be back tomorrow with an episode of Hashtag Terry Tuesday. It is one of my least favorite topics to discuss, um, but I at least know Terry and I will find a way to thread the needle and 
wade through the mud. So I'm looking forward to that discussion tomorrow. I've got some great interviews coming up like we had last week with Robert Lyles and Clint Pulver and Ashley Morgan coming up later this week on The Compliance Guy. So until then, remember, be good to yourself, but more importantly, y'all be good to each other. Take care. You've been listening to The Compliance Guy. Sean has been doing this for 28 years. He holds 10 national board certifications. He's a partner and the vice president of compliance for Doctors Management, LLC. He's a subject matter expert in federal court. He's lectured at the most prestigious institutions. He's engaged with members of Congress in both chambers. So what we're saying is he's qualified? We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, you can find us on social media at The Compliance Guy. See you next time on The Compliance Guy.